Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1212, with guest Vishwas Lele. Recorded Friday, October 2nd, 2015. Hey, 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 it's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here. Vishwas Lele is here. We're going to be talking about cloud-oriented programming. But uh, first, um, what's up, Mr. Campbell? You doing okay? Things are good, actually. My uh, my youngest is in a women's level curling tournament, and uh, they are, so they're playing like champions, right? Folks yeah. that have won on the national stage and stuff, but this is the level they're playing at now, and uh, they're the newcomers, but they have won a game. That's so cool. It's very exciting, you and know, that they, they are they are prepared. I mean, when you're playing a national champion, chances of you winning are low. I mean, you play your hardest game and maybe they don't have a good day. But for them, it's a learning experience, you know. In some ways, it's, a, it's to your advantage to be the least experienced team in most experienced people. Where else will you learn? Pretty cool. And so if they win this tournament, what, what, what's the next step? What's the well, next this level counts up? towards points. So you have to, you don't have to win the whole tournament. You have to rank a certain level. And once you rank at high level, you're allowed to enter the provincial level tournament, like a state level tournament. Got it. If you win that, you go to nationals. You Got win it. that, you go to worlds. And if you should win nationals on the year before a winter Olympic, Olympics, the worlds are the Olympics. Oh, wow. So she is playing in a league where all if the stars align correctly, she could go to the Olympics. Very cool. We'll send out lots of positive energy. I've heard the hippies say that every once in a while. So <laughs> I don't really know what that means, but I think it's good. It's a it's a really interesting place to be in your head mm. to try and play at this level and to uh, to be able to get value from from uh, these really experienced players. So I'm excited for. I'm super proud. All right. Very cool. Good luck there. And uh, I got something interesting. It's about competing. Oh, uh, for better no framework. So competing and computing. Uh, you'll hear after I roll the music. All right, my friend, what do you got? Codefights.com. Codefights. Oh no. Codefights.com. Test your coding skills. Compete with other people by offering programming challenges in real time. Other people around the world. Or you can challenge a friend one-to-one. Coding competitions. Coding competitions online. How cool is that? Code fights. I don't know. You know, is this actually cultivating a useful skill? I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, it's definitely cultivating an, an aggressive stance. That's for sure. Well, and and is speed to code is a main value like it's really an interesting oh debate. come on it's fun <laughs> i that's a good angle to take on it it's fun this is fun yeah and it's a lot more geeky than you know video games i guess although i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna get hate mail for that one i'm sure because uh, video know, games I'm, are pretty damn geeky i got a soft spot for kerbal but i think you knew that yeah 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 it's true well you know this is this is a competition that very few uh, can partake in, you know, relatively speaking, among yep. the geeks. So uh, I think we ought to all try it. As uh, as programming athletes, huh? Yeah, why That's not? Interesting thought. You know, that and a scotch. You, it's Friday <laughs> night, man. <laughs> <laughs> a competition I can do in my underwear in my basement. <laughs> That's a competition scotch. I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, let's see if we can bring this to the Olympics. There you go. Yeah. 
That's what I got. Codefights.com, Richard. I love it. All right. Who's talking to us, man? Grabbed a comment off of show 1167, the one we did with one Vishwas Lele, when we talked about model-driven DevOps. Yeah. That was a really cool conversation. Great conversation. And clearly, I was not alone, because there was a bunch of other folks that thought very similarly. And David Leadham had this awesome comment. He said, one aspect of automation that I'm working on is deploying the database schema. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been yeah. talking about this a lot. My project is a multi-tenant commercial application where each customer maintains their own database. When upgrading each customer to a new version, I need to apply the schema changes to each database. Another aspect of this is development. Each developer will work on their own separate database. The issue here is how to propagate each schema change to other developers and ultimately to the live customer database. My current solution, which I'm in the middle of implementing, so it is vaporware, and I love that call out. (laughs) That's just being honest. (laughs) I haven't made this work yet. Is to create a full JSON representation of the current database schema of one developer and save it in the source code space with a Visual Studio extension. So treating schema as source code. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah. The changes are propagated to a second developer via Git. So, you know, you're up with a pull request. Yeah. The database of the second developer is updated by looking for changes between the JSON schema and the database schema. So now use a tool to compare what the current state is to what your intended change is coming from the JSON schema. I'm doing three things to keep things simple. David, this is not a simple problem. You're making it. It's a complicated problem. There's no two ways about it. So it doesn't have to be simple, but simpler managing it. I am targeting only one database, Postgres. So not supporting multiple databases, just Postgres, which I've got a love for. I'm assuming that most objects once deployed to a live build are immutable. So once Mm. you get it out there, you leave it out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm maintaining schema tables within each database of what the expected schema should look like inside the database. This could be a little over-engineered, but then again, it is hard to do right. I'm expecting it all to blow up in my face at any time. All right. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you clearly are hearing the voice of someone who has had their butt handed to them before. Sure am. So that they, they're definitely going through this. But I love just this thinking of managing schema and source, co- source control so you have a clear sort of chain of evidence. As to, it went from here to here to here, and here's how each of the changes were applied using tools to do the actual implementation so it's completely consistent. I mean, this to me is good DevOps practices. Yeah. Taking the best of code management from development and applying it to an typically an operations problem of updating and migrating data. Very good. Awesome stuff. Yep. Let us know how it turns out. Absolutely. So, David, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of the social media we post. We put every show up on Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And that brings us to our guest, Vishwas Lele. He has been on the show many times. In fact, I think Vishwas was the first guest to talk about the cloud ever. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He's an Azure MVP and a developer working at Applied Information Sciences. Please welcome back Vishwas Lele. Welcome back, buddy. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. I saw your title today, Cloud-Oriented Programming which I think mm-hmm. is really clever, you know, because now I have all sorts of questions about and, and sort of started answering them too, you know, what does that mean? But I, I, I sort of want to, let's ask you, because you're the guest, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, sure. And, and thank you, Richard and Carl, for inviting me back to the show. Of course. So cloud-oriented programming, uh, this is a topic of a course that I recently released on Plural site. And the idea behind this course is I often talk to developers about the cloud through user groups, et cetera. And of course, developers understand at a high level the advantages of the cloud. So you get seamless, elastic resources. You have scale out, you have utility billing and all of that. And you know the ability to provision these things quickly. But what should I do at the code level that aligns me with the interest or with the benefits of the cloud? Yeah. So that that was fundamentally, can we talk about a few things as part of this course where, you know, these things are important at the code level. If we did that, our organizations, our clients can get more benefit, more mileage out of moving to the cloud. So is this an architectural thing or is it literally I write my code differently because I'm in the cloud? 
It is uh, designed to be, you know, this course is made up of about eight or 10 tips. Those are code level tips. Some of them you could argue that they're not just code level, they are broader, they are somewhat design or architectural level. But the idea, Richard, was indeed to take eight or 10 tips, which are around code. In fact, every module has a code part to it. In fact, what I did was I took one application, one reference application, and then used parts of it to talk about those eight or 10 tips. Nice. Well, you know, we've only got an hour. 10 tips is only a couple of minutes each. Let's get started. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, we can cover a few of them and then see how it goes. Sure. So the so the first one was uh, about exception handling. And this, uh, you know, often when, you know, we write exception handling code and uh, we catch an exception and sometimes we are retrying that logic. And this seems pretty in innocuous piece of code. But oftentimes you don't realize that, you know, should there be should we be waiting and retrying this logic or oftentimes we'll just catch an exception, try it again. And in the cloud, uh, that can have a significant impact on your code. So one of the, one of the suggestions that I make in my, my, as part of the first tip is that you may want to do some kind of a back off. And in fact, I, I go through maybe you want to put uh, some timeout, you catch an exception or you're looking for a resource that is unavailable. You wait for a certain period of time and try again mm -hmm. because you don't want, you don't want to keep trying. And first of all, tight loop is bad, cloud yep. or not. Yeah. Cloud or not, of course. But then let's say you decide to wait for some variable period of time or a fixed period of time. That is fine, but it may also be better to, to do this in some kind of a logarithmic back off. So you back off at a you know increasing interval right and and the idea is that if you do let's say you have a multi-threaded program each program and let's say the resource is unavailable you know maybe that service is temporarily unavailable and you have multiple threads going against let's say table storage and each one of them is waiting for a, a certain period of time and then trying again and trying again so you are creating these 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 waves of of uh, activity, which is going against this resource, all of them finding out that resource is not available and then trying again at the same time, yeah. it might be better to do a logarithmic back off, both from a perspective of spacing these calls out and also reducing the cost. Because in the cloud, one thing which we have to talk about, uh, we'll, do, we'll talk specifically cost later, but there is a cost implication to that. And that cost may be, be really small, but there is a cost of doing a lookup against the table storage. Every retry yeah. is going right. to cost you some money. I mean, it's fractions of a cent, right. but right. it's something. Right. You know, I like, to, I like to joke with my co-workers that, you know, the monthly Azure bill has actually made me a better developer yeah, because, it tells you, <laughs> <laughs> because it tells you how many times uh, this thing is being called. And once again, the cost may not be a significant factor. I'll give you another example related to exception handling. And this has happened in my code, and I'm sure other developers can relate to this, is you get a message, uh, often called a poison message, you process it, there's something about that message that when you go to process it, your program crashes or hangs or something like that. Right. right? And, and you do that once, you do that twice, and you keep trying that. And you, of course, every time you're looking up a queue uh, message, let's say, uh, you are, there's a cost associated with that. But what you really want to do is you want to look at the number of retry attempts and decide for yourself how many retry attempts are good enough and at which point you take that poison message and store it somewhere else so that somebody can process it later. Right. Do you, Vishwas, have you used the Poly library from Michael Wolfenden? This is, uh, you can find it at tinyurl.com slash polyretry, P-O-L-L-Y, retry. And it's basically, it's a way to declaratively express transient exception handling policies like retry, retry forever, wait and retry, or even a circuit breaker. And uh, it's really saved my butt on many time, uh, on many occasions just by handling this stuff asynchronously. Yes. But, um, but it still doesn't take away the problem of, um, like you're saying, figuring out how many retries to do and when to give up and, and all of that stuff. But it does make the the technical aspect of, of doing retries asynchronously easier. 
Certainly, and libraries that can help a lot because you, you are you have a policy based manner in which you can ex handle your exceptions. So you can say, for this instance, you want to have a threshold of three. For some other instance where that resource is critical and you're willing to wait, maybe the threshold is different. So doing it in a policy based approach, like the library you mentioned, I've not used it, but I, just from your description, it seems like that would be configurable and and that that would be the way to go, certainly. So, so that's that's one example. And Richard, you decide. I thought this was pretty much a code level thing, simple thing that I think, you know, the cloud fundamentally does not change how we write code, but we have to be cognizant of certain things. So, you know, doing a tight loop, as I said, in 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 any case is bad. But then paying attention to how many retry attempts are we making? Are we using some kind of a logarithmic back off in trying to go for a resource again? And you've said that before, logarithm back off. How fast is the back off then? So you try once, then you wait, what, five seconds? Then how that, long do you wait? A minute? <laughs> oh, the, right. So that, that depends on the, on the resource uh, there is. So you, you are logarithmically increasing your wait interval. That's fundamentally what I'm talking about. Right. But, and, it, and it's a dramatic increase each time. If it's, yes. You know, if it's a minor failure, it's going to work again in a couple of seconds. Yes. But you talk about a typical, you know, especially we talk about cloud recoveries, it might be a minute or it might be two minutes. If it's not two minutes, it's probably an hour. And if it's not an hour, it's a day. <laughs> right. I was I was not, um, that, that's a good point, Richard. I was not thinking of it in that, those terms. I was just thinking of a resource, which is there's some kind of a transient fault right. of some sort. And then you want to you want to try it again. And I was not thinking of a long interruption. I was thinking of where you're in a, some kind of a shared service and you've reached, uh, you have a noisy neighbor or or um, you have reached yourself a certain threshold of number of requests. And, you, yeah. and, and you know, certainly then, then trying it again, but trying it in a policy-based manner would be helpful. And a number of libraries do that. I mean, if you look at the transient exception handling block, that that was put out by Patterns and Practices Group to work with, uh, first came out with the SQL, uh, Azure SQL database, it allows you some of those things as well. Right. And, it, and that's exactly it, is just thinking in terms of, well, the easiest thing that happens if you just go, well, let's try three times. Well, you tried three times in a half a second. So, yeah. Right. Nothing, it didn't work out. If you're, if any, if you've got a part of that transactions in a failover process, and I'm, you know, familiar with like SQL Server failover. Works like a hot damn. Takes two minutes, depending on the infrastructure. I've seen it never take less than two minutes. I've seen it take more. Mm. But if you do three retries in a second, you know, nothing good's going to happen for you. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So, so, so that's that's one example uh, related to this. I had another example, which was, you know, fancy way to say that you know maybe there's an opportunity to reimagine the exception handler. So we talked about the, the retry logic. But up until now, what we do is uh, if we get into an exception condition, usually uh, you are out of luck, you're out of some resource, and at that point you can't do much. Right. In fact, uh, if you look at some of the programs where there, there's a pattern out there which talks about, you know, maybe you need to conserve some energy up front for your exception handling logic to execute properly. So people have done those kinds of things. But in the cloud, you have an opportunity to spin up those resources. So in an on-premises environment, in an on-premises environment, sorry, if you're out of a resource, you're out of a resource. But in the cloud, you have an opportunity to maybe in a just-in-time manner, provision a resource. And the example I cite in my course is the mobile services example. So you have a mobile service instance, and you can create a copy of that mobile service if this instance becomes unhealthy. Right. Sure, your users have to wait. But oftentimes, if you find that this kind of healing logic is best put in the application itself, rather than, you know, sending a page to someone, they figure out what the problem is. If your application is intelligent enough to do some of these things themselves, then it makes for that auto-healing go much better. So that was the other point of you know, are there opportunities now that we have the ability to provision resources on the fly, maybe go to another data center perhaps, because take, take the example of storage. Uh, you have something called, so by default, when you create a storage account, 
uh, you get a geo replication turned on and then you have something called the read access RAGRS which means you have a read only copy available in another data center so maybe if the if the primary storage container is unavailable for some reason at least you can go to the secondary data center and then try to look up do a look up on that or read that information from there so uh, w- once again this piece of code is not entirely new we have been used to writing these kinds of exception handling situations but the the features that are available geo replication for example the the ability to to detect a unhealthy mobile service instance and then copy it elsewhere and then access that these are the kinds of resources that cloud enables and we should be thinking about when we write these applications for the cloud for sure yeah, absolutely um next yeah. I, I appreciate your handling. There's so many to talk about here. Let's keep okay. moving. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep going. Then the next one is about logging. And once again, logging is important. Every developer understands this. Yep. But logging has a whole different level of importance when it comes to the cloud. Sure. Uh, take, take, for example, you know, let's say you're writing a cloud services-based application, writing web roles and worker roles, things like that. If you write locally to the event viewer or write to a local log, and let's say there's a hard disk failure, Azure's fabric controller, sort of the brain behind Azure, will say, oh, this FabRoll instance is, is dead. I'm going to heal this service. I'm going to take your code, spin up another machine, and then I'm going to copy your code and add it back to the load balancer, and I'm, I've healed you, which is great, except now you've lost track of that machine. You have no access to that machine anymore, but you had written those event logs and uh, you know the local directories and things like that. So A, logging is important, but you also have to think about how are you going to aggregate these logs? So we have a number of capabilities, like uh, you know Azure itself has something called Azure Diagnostics, where you can say every, every so many minutes, take my logs, and this could be event viewer logs, my custom logs, IaaS logs, what have you, even dumps, and please move them to a central storage location so that I can collate this information and I can look at this information together. But, but instrumenting your code is probably the, the, I think the probably the most important aspect of readiness when you're taking your application to the cloud. Because if you are you're not instrumented it well, it'll be very hard to figure out. And ultimately, I think we all will be judged by, you know, failures are going to happen. We'll all be judged by uh, how much time it took to resolve an error and come back up. And monitoring is important, and there are a number of tools out there that can you choose from. I talk in this, in my course about App Insight. Uh, I talk about Azure Diagnostics, but then there is New Relic, there is Splunk, there are a whole host of capabilities that are available to us. But taking this information, being, being able to correlate them is, is, is really important. And along with, monit- along with sort of logging and instrumentation, you can turn a number of alerts on as well and say, if your application gets these many HTTP 500 errors, please notify me. Or if I get a sustained CPU utilization of certain, of above 95% for a five minute period, please notify me. So these kinds of things are important. Once again, uh, keep this in mind as we are developing these applications. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software? Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. And this instrumentation in production... You know, I I have been talking about it for a while now just from the sense that we can afford it. We have the resources available. It used to be that instrumentation and production was a big deal. I wonder how much it's just because cloud, you just provision what you need. You know, just have more resources. That instrumentation and production is so valuable, it's worth the overhead. 
And it's more direct too, right? I mean, well, like it's the truth. Yeah, you you don't have to have a human interpret a perf counter, and you know, hit the switch. Things can just happen. Right, right, uh, absolutely. I I think uh, you know, uh, to your question, it is it is a combination of two things, Richard. One is, uh, you know, these the cost of doing this instrumentation has steadily gone down. Yep. So you look so you look at IntelliTrace, right? It used to be a certain number of uh, you know, you have to adjust the verbosity of it, and there was a cost associated with with adding you that run IntelliTrace in production. It just right. took too much, right? But now we are saying that you know that cost of doing that is like one or two percent, which is probably acceptable. And then Absolutely. we have and we have scale out architecture, so you can spin up another instance, just light up more. Yes, I pay ten percent, Vishwas, for what it gives me. Yes. Yeah, and and uh, I think the, the the other important thing to note here is it's not a choice anymore. No, this if, is if what you, professional software looks like. Yeah. yeah, if you don't have instrumentation, then then you are sort of you know burying your, your head in sand and taking your application to the cloud, and something goes wrong, you have no idea what right. is happening. Already, people are worried about, and and this is this is a question that you often get from CIOs that there is a sense of loss of control beyond all of the, the common issues of security and trust and things like that. This issue of loss of control. I, I can't ask someone to go in and just restart a machine or walk up to that machine and see what's happening. Mm. You, you have absolutely no ability to do that. So the, your instrumentation is only thing that's going to save you. And frankly, that falls on us as developers to make sure the instrumentation is right and we can glean interesting information when something should go wrong. Just to be clear, when I put my operations hats on, I can instrument your app without your permission. <laughs> <laughs> don't you don't make me, but I can. True. Right? The beautiful True. thing about being in a in in the CLR in and uh, having that intermediary stage is that we can insert in interceptions and I can log at the method level without ever having access to the source code. Very true. Very true. So, what we call the just-in-time instrumentation. You, you, you app insight. For example, you start the app insight monitor on that node, and it can instrument on the fly, and it will collect the data and it will send it to a central service, and then you can go to that service and you know get show me the top ten slowest methods in my application. You can certainly do that. Yeah, and uh, Operations Manager has a module called Application Performance Monitoring, yep. which not only will insert into your .NET DLLs and interceptive methods, but as you raise crit level one errors that would show up in the error log normally, I can map that into TFS and create work items from it. Yes, yes. Which, so, uh, which, which if you don't talk to dev before you do that, you're going to scare the crap out of them. Like, that's just <laughs> evil. You should have a conversation. I'd just like to put that on the table. You should talk about this stuff. Like, we all want to know more about what's happening to the app in production. Talking is perhaps the best instrumentation. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> true, true. And then, Richard, to, to your point, we can certainly do that. We have these capabilities that you very accurately described. But I think the role the developers have to play is sometimes this instrumentation is best done when there is a business context associated with that. So, yes, you will tell me the top 10 slowest performing methods, but wouldn't it be nice if you showed me a sort of a breakdown of, when I call this external subsystem, these five methods get invoked. Wouldn't it be nice if I had a snapshot of comparing these five external methods, right? And, and that... We, you have to know something about the application to be able to provide that coarse-grained information. Yeah. So, so I think developers have to have a role to play, but I think this just-in-time instrumentation is a great way to go. If you, if you have not instrumented, if you are moving an existing application, you're doing a lift and shift, certainly start there. Yeah, and, and, and in, even when the devs are on board, the idea of taking an existing app that we're not confident we could recompile and being able to instrument it anyway is pretty important. The challenge is when you instrument in the method level without having dug through the source code or having source code people involved is making sense of the methods. Yep. Yes. And actually saying, is like, is this meaningful information? Because as with all instrumentation, you're going to get a lot of data. Does it mean anything? Right. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to execute a policy for my mid-show jokes to retry them until they get just one laugh. 
<laughs> oh, I'm I'm sorry. We're gonna have to stop the show right here. You you guys have been great. Thanks. Nice. So, you know we can have a logarithmic delay. <laughs> you may bug me right now, but you won't bug me again for another hour. And after that, <laughs> oh, but it means we have to stop right now. Actually, it's time to give away a Studio Enterprise from Component One, a big collection of awesome from them. But first, let me tell you about Active Reports. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax and government forms, and strategic analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Check them out at component1.com. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Jason Venema. All right, racist Jason. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. Everybody gets a golf clap. Everybody gets a golf clap. And Jason just won the Component One Studio Enterprise. That's their flagship product. A big pile of awesome, as I said, from our sponsors at Component One. And if you don't know what we just did, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. Coming up in a few months. It's going to be great. And we like to ask our guest, Vishwas, if you had $5,000 right now to spend on technology, what would you buy? I'll have to email that back to you. I have so many things. Oh, to cop out, <laughs> cop out. It's got to be now, right now. <laughs> What's the first thing you think of? What toy don't you have? What toy don't I have? Um, I guess, uh, I guess uh, you know, I, I would spend... Uh, on um, when when the HoloLens becomes available, I guess I'm going to spend it on that when it becomes. Yeah. Available. Yeah. I would hope you can get more than one HoloLens for five thousand bucks. Yep, I would hope. But yes, yes, and yes, I'll spend the five grand to get at the top of the list. Yes, I, I guess one now. I hear rumor we're going to get the Dev SDK next year. It's not going to be the production product, but it'll be a great time to be a dev. And I hope that by the delay of, and you know, by delay, I mean, they hinted that HoloLens might ship sometime before now, but it hasn't certainly. And I hope they're working on that field of view problem. So that yeah. seems to be the biggest sticking point with the public so far. The concern, without a doubt. Yep. What would you do with HoloLens, Vishwas, knowing your kind of software? I mean, what's, what kind of applications are you thinking? I, I just want to play with it, just to try to understand. <laughs> yeah. I just try to understand what the capability is. Yeah, like, no I, I was not one of the lucky ones to try it out at Build. Oh. I, I, I think you guys tried it out, so I didn't get a chance to try it out. But I just want to to try it out and just, I think some applications would, you know, you obviously read a lot about people have all sorts of ideas. But yeah. I just want to try it out first and then see. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, you know, I could do, I could really dig like matrix visualizations. I'm looking, looking at a machine and it figures out which computer it is in, in my, in my rack and tells me what the current workloads are. You know, like you could really do some interesting stuff that way. I want to put a real, I want to make a real time mixer for a sound guy. So he sees volume levels over everybody's head and then can just reach up and lower them <laughs> and raise them. I love it. That's so cool. <laughs> that is awesome. That's yeah. a great idea. Yep. All right. Uh, I mean, in some ways, I feel like we've done sort of the classics with error handling and instrumentation. Should we move on? Sure. So, you know, um, we've done three. And uh, the the next segment was really about microservices and reuse and containers. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've read and your listeners have heard a lot about them. So I'll just talk a little bit about... So this might be an area, Richard, that you may say, Vishwas, this is not purely code. This is some design, and then certainly is. But as developers, we have to think about this. Uh, so I think of microservices as the single responsibility principle, which we well know from object-oriented programming design, applied to services. Right. And uh, you, so you have this autonomous piece of code, which probably has some kind of a persistence associated with that, all in abstracted into one service called the microservice. And this seems to be 
uh, a pattern that has gained a lot of importance. Companies like Netflix, when they first moved to the cloud, they had their, there's an interesting slide deck that you can find. When they first moved to the cloud, they had this monolithic application that they took to the cloud, lifted and shifted to the cloud essentially. But if you look at their architecture now, it has 500 plus microservices. And the, the real benefit if you sort of boil down through all all of the all of the things it provides you, but real benefit to me it seems like is the ability to make quick changes and do these rapid upgrades and releases. So when you're going to the cloud, once again thinking about uh, your application in terms of these collection of microservices is important. And related to that, the concept is of containers. I think they're closely related. Because yes. if, you, if you look at the, you know, the technology called Service Fabric, which was announced at Build, it, it really is a, is a combination of the two. One, it gives you a platform to build these microservices. So you can take a piece of code and, you know, give it a version and you essentially deploy it to a cluster called the Service Fabric. And then you get a number of benefits from it. You, you get, once the cluster is in place, you get fault tolerance, you get... Uh, testability, you get resource balancing and things like that. So you get all these benefits. But then uh, what if you wanted to take this piece of code, which is abstracted inside some, some kind of a unit and move that around? Let's say you want to test it locally on your machine, or you want to deploy it uh, to a hosted facility, and maybe the production version runs in the public cloud. How do you sort of couple these dependencies into one unit and sort of move them around. And, and the containers give you a great way of, of doing that. And there was a major announcement last week. When I was doing this course, we did not have Windows Server containers available to us. So you may find this interesting is uh, in order to demonstrate the concept of containers as part of my course, what I ended up doing was uh, taking an ASP.NET application and then porting that application to Linux because of course ASP.NET runs in Linux, yeah. yeah, and took that application there, uh, Dockerified it, essentially created a Docker Dockified image, it. Dockerified <laughs> it. I mean, Dockerified, Dockerified. I think he said, yeah, yeah. yes, and then um, created an image out of that, and and you know now at that point when I was doing this course, we had this ability to run the Docker client on a Windows, not the not the host, so showed that, but but of course recently. Uh, we have Windows Server 2016 and, and the Docker available on the Windows platform. So certainly this gives us this ability to take pieces of code in microservices, package them in units, be able to move them around and sort of not have to worry about all of the dependency problems that arise in a distributed application. So I don't want to change this application because this might impact some other part. Now that I've encapsulated that into one unit, I can move it around. And the other sort of benefit of microservices is that unless you've broken up your application into these smaller parts, you are you will end up using uh, resources inefficiently because you know different parts of your application may have a different scale characteristic. So wouldn't it be nice if you're able to take these units and move them and place them into a compute skew, which makes more sense rather mm -hmm. than trying to, you know, find the best VM for that entire application, even though not all parts of the application need to scale in a similar manner. So that was, that was the part related to containers and microservices. And I also added a module related to that, which was reuse. Of course, we know classic reuse and, and that applies to the cloud as well. But there's one other interesting dynamic in the cloud because there is, if you look at, uh, let's say, cloud services example, once again, uh, there's a homogeneous set of underlying operating systems that are available. So we have this concept of guest OS families, and you can be on a certain, there are only two versions supported right now. You have to be in that version. And by virtue of that homogeneous state, you have this ability to reuse uh, more components because you know you you don't have this all different components different versions running so you have better chances of of reuse and in fact things like the Azure Marketplace uh, gives you this ability to plug in external services and I give example of SendGrid 
I wanted to send an email out. All I did was added a SendGrid subscription to my um, Azure account. And by virtue of that, I got an endpoint. I added that to my application. And now I can send and receive emails as an example. So there right. are better opportunities for reuse. Oh, very cool. So, and the, the related example I provided, and uh, this is what I talked about, uh, Richard, recently related to machine learning, which mm -hmm. is now we have this, we, we are in this world of polyglot programming anyways. We have all of these different programming languages, and maybe there's certain language better suited for that. And the example that I provided is R, for example, R language, for example, is is, is very well suited for these machine learning algorithms and recommendations kinds of things. But it's really a problem to spin up uh, something like that into your application. And uh, the, the example I provided as part of my course was, well, I can now create an Azure machine learning experiment, drag and drop an R activity, code my R, and then just simply access that course over a REST endpoint. So now I've created another microservice, but it is based on R because R is the best language for doing that. And I've incorporated that with my rest of my application. So mm -hmm. it improves the chances for how I can build, get greater reuse because now I'm in a platform which gives me these capabilities. The whole machine learning side of this thing, I think, is a, is a big piece that I don't know we've given enough love to, but I don't think it's well understood at all. Seth Warris understands it. <laughs> Apparently he's the only one, and he works for Channel 9 now. From what I understand about machine learning, as long as you have a clear idea of what outcomes you want, you know, in other words, what, what do you want to find? And your inputs are clearly defined. The rest of it is easy. But that, that actually turns out to be the hard part in machine learning is figuring out what exactly do I want to know from this data? True, true. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interest, interesting you mentioned that, Carl, because uh, my interest in machine learning, and this was my, my AzureCon talk as well, just two days back, of using machine learning and software engineering. Because I think of mach machine learning, and certainly there are these canonical use cases of predicting, you know, shopping cart, retail, predicting a failure anomaly detection in a jet engine. Of course, those are great examples. Right. And I'm thinking of how to apply that to software engineering. And I think of machine languages as another form of programming almost. So I'm, I'm interested in the algorithmic part versus the data and statistics part of machine learning where, you know, rather than giving, uh, you know, developer a set of requirements and having the developer generate code, I think giving a machine a set of requirements in the form of constraints, maybe input-output data sets, and having that machine then generate a piece of code in the form of trained algorithm and then using that within my application. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and you know, not all machine learning has defined outcomes like that. Often, you know, one of the things that's cool about machine learning is that it finds relationships of data that you haven't thought of, right. that you didn't think was there. You know, that, that, that to me is where you get really powerful is tell me something I don't know. That's kind of hard to express, you know, when when you are setting that stuff up. I guess, you know, what's the difference between machine learning and predictive analytics? That's what I want to know. I mean, predictive analytics seems to be pretty cut and dry definition, but machine learning, I guess, is a bit more general. Yeah, predictive analytics, definitely the subset there. But uh, I don't want to go too far off on this path just because it's almost its own show. It's not really a dev thing per se. It's sort of the results of our applications open up opportunities for machine learning. Yep. Um, with the Indeed. with the fifteen minutes or so we've got left, Vishwas, can we get a couple more in? Yes. So I'll I'll go down three more. So the first one is, uh, or or first one in this last segment, I should say, is the cost aware computing part, and my. Once again, the advice to developers is that we can't just rely on architects and PMs to, to worry about the cost. We as developers can do a number of things uh, to help with reduction of the overall cost. Whether it is an unused resource, maybe getting rid of it, maybe uh, like we talked about the poison message handling, which ultimately results in extra cost. We can do things at the code level to reduce costs and as I said, getting rid of things that we don't need. But fundamentally, it is it has been shown that if your code is more efficient, it costs less to run. 
So, right. Mm. So that's that's an important part. So you know, help your organization or client by writing more efficient code so that you can run on a smaller skew with the same response time characteristics. Yeah, we do have these granular elements of size of CPU, you know, size of storage and so forth that can allow us to get a little more granular on cost per transaction. Right. Right. So so that was that's one part that we we as developers need to do more. The other uh, sort of related... I just wonder if it's worthwhile, Vishwas. I mean, generally speaking, our software makes so much money compared to what it costs. Is this a good place to put your time? Like, are you paying your salary in the savings of the effort mm. you put in? That's a good point, Richard. I mean, I um, we, we can talk about some examples where a runaway code can can really be expensive to your organization. Sure. And, but is it, uh, we're not saying expensive in millions of dollars. We're we, we maybe expensive not. in thousands. Uh, in thousands, and and you know, yes. And I, I've I've made those mistakes myself. And uh, yep. and at least twice, the Azure team was nice enough to to uh, you know do something about it because right. you know I I had this piece of code that was a runaway piece of code. Didn't realize it was running, and ended up racked up a certain amount of bill. So you know it can add up. But I I I think this. Guidance is important because small things will add up over time. Sure. And I, I'm sure I've told this story before, but may, I'm tinkering with the first APIs available from the telephone company to send text messages. Yep. Back when it was like the, the Nokia 1600s where each text message popped up on the LCD screen one at a time and you had to clear them individually. And they were 75 cents each. And I sent 32,767 of them in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you talk about getting that phone call. Yeah. Then, and then calling tech support because nobody wants to delete 32,000 text messages <laughs> one by a time. Finally get to tier three support after an hour of, you know, arguing with various folks. And the moment the guy picks up the phone, he goes, hi, I've had a little problem with your API and I've sent a few too many messages. And he goes, Oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> he was just looking at it. Cause it's like, that's a lot of messages. Yeah. <laughs> yep. no, that's, These that's, things happen. Yep. So, so I think it's important to be cognizant of that because, uh, if you look at the cloud and people do cost comparisons and, you know, oftentimes they'll say, Hey, uh, you know, the running in the cloud seems to be more expensive. Because, you know, I can buy this server and I can run this on-prem and it's a one-time cost. But then, of course, that's not true because you have this cost of managing it and patching it and the hardware gets old and you have to refresh the hardware. You have all oh, of yeah, these no, costs. Oh, yeah, no, the total cost of ownership, not an easy number to calculate and way bigger than you think. It's it's way bigger than you think. Uh, but if you look at the cloud side, then it's a utility-based model. But you still have to... You know, if you are able to do something to reduce that, I think it will go a long way in making you more successful yeah. in the cloud. The other related sort of concept here is you need to design your applications uh, for scalability in mind. And, and, you know, this is given that cloud generally prefers a scale-out model, although, you know, you could easily argue now that we have really some huge machines uh, that, you know, you can go up to, um, you know, 16 cores, 32 cores and stuff like that. So you, you can really right. go high up there and get premium storage and things like that. So you have really sophisticated hardware. You know, we used to talk about cloud at the beginning that, you know, this is commodity hardware and it can fail anytime. And that's certainly true, but, but people have demanded and customers have demanded and all of the public cloud providers have provided these premium options. So you certainly have that capability, but if you are designing an application uh, from the scratch, Think of scale out in mind, and I and I talk uh, a lot about you know why that is important. And in my course, I talk about you know how reducing the size of the lock, irrespective of whether you're cloud or not, reducing the size of the lock can improve performance and make your application more efficient. And more efficient application will cost you less. So I talk about partitioning as a key to uh, scalability, whether, whether it is you're talking about table storage or, or anything like that, or even date or even Azure SQL database, some kind of a partitioning story. And thinking about that is important. And doing partitioning correctly after the fact is hard. If you can think of that and bake it in initially, makes things much simpler. The last item that I had 
as is part of this module, um, Richard was related to infrastructure as code. And this goes back to our previous discussion about, about DevOps. And yeah. I think this is a new skill that developers have to embrace because to be successful in the cloud, you have to have automation in place. And in order to do automation, you have to have a robust automation. Whether you're a PowerShell-based automation, you have Node.js-based automation or what have you, you have to treat it as a first-class citizen. You have to make proper use of reuse. You have to structure your code accordingly. You have to test it, all of that. So that's a skill that's important. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, DevOps, that's why, uh, you know, developers need to think about automation, monitoring all of that. And that's uh, something that is uh, needs to be paid attention to. Absolutely. And and needs care and feeding, right? Like it's worth spending time and money and effort on that. It makes everything else go better. That's right. I, I remember watching, um, you know, a group discussion at one of these conferences. I think it was an AWS conference where they had their top customers, CIOs from top customers who had spent the most. And, uh, you know, they were asking them questions about their experiences in the cloud. And the last question was, if you had to say one thing about your experience over the last two or three years that you could do differently, and many of them echoed the same sentiment that, you know, I, I remember one person, uh, I, I don't remember the company, but I, I, might, I can find the link and send it to you. This person said, we spent a lot on automation to automate things, but if I had to redo it again, I would spend more on automation and make sure it was robust yeah. and insightful. So that was telling. This is a customer that has paid a lot to be in the public cloud, have been in the cloud for a number of years, and they've boiled that insight down to that. And in order to realize that, we as developers need to get better at that. And that was sort of the, the, the motivation from that last item in that course. Well, Vishwas, thank you very much. I, I, you didn't hear much from me, but I was listening and absorbing it all, as I hope our listeners were too. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. <laughs>